0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: It was just sung about that is entirely out of your mind, out of your heart, by your will, and driven by your power. We had nothing to do with it. and In fact, all that humans contributed to it was evil. We crucified God the Son in flesh according to your wise sovereign plan, as you tell us in Acts 4. Praise you. Thank you. By his death you have made a people. You have provided a way for wrath to be removed you have taken it off of those who you have called placed it on him whom you appointed and then given to us his righteousness thank you for that and we who are yours now turn to you and say now teach us how to live given that you have made us your own teach us how to live and for that you've given us your scriptures and in particular your law And so we look to it today eager to find truth, eager to find grace in it. So teach us, I pray. Sanctify us by your word. Open our eyes. Father, commission your spirit to come and be in our midst here today, to give clarity to what I say so that it is true to your word and that it makes sense and to give alertness to those of us who hear, whether we're in first grade or a little bit older than that. Help us to to think and to listen, to see you and to understand you, to more deeply love you, and to be drawn to obey you. Grant that. Give power for that this morning, I pray. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the ninth commandment. For the last few months we've been addressing the ten commandments and as we've worked through them we have seen that this succinct expression by god of his law is essentially the the, the very minimal expression of his treaty his covenant that he made with his people he he took a people and he took them out of slavery in egypt liberated them from that brought them under his own authority made them his own people and then made a covenant with them a treaty here's how we're going to relate now that you are my people and the Ten Commandments are the briefest expression of that law. And as i mentioned several times, but have to every Sunday, because there, there are, of course, new people here, I have to clarify this and, and be sure that we, that we understand it very clearly, that as we read this law, as we listen to it explained, that it is not to be read, it must not be read, or must not be understood as, here's what you do so as to become one of God's people. Here's what you do. If you obey this and live like this, then God will accept you and will be pleased with you and will make you one of His own. You'll be saved. That's not the case. So we're just talking about it and praying about it, and as the facts of history make clear, it's actually the exact opposite. Given that He has already made us His people, here's how we live in a way that pleases Him. Given that He took them out of Egypt and brought them under His own authority, then gave them the law to tell them how to live, in relationship to Him. Given that He has brought us, His people, out of slavery to sin and has made us His own by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, here's how we are to live. The cross is critical in understanding how is it that I become God's people. Obedience to the law is not it. It's the cross. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, as we sang this morning. What can wash away my sin? Not more strident obedience. Obedience. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. In fact, when we read God's law, we see and hear what God requires, and we also see how far we fall from it. We learn about our sin, and we learn about God's wrath due on us, and that drives us back to the only place that I can have my sin washed away, the cross. That's what's going on when Jesus, who is God God come down in the flesh, dies on the cross, He removes wrath off of lawbreakers. For those who trust Him, He removes wrath, makes a people, and then gives us back the law and says, but this is what I expect of my people. This is how you are to live. This is what pleases me. And surely as we read the law, there is righteousness explained there. There is the character of God displayed there. Not so that we can become His. You need to be really clear about that. But understanding that, then we can come to it and we can find much to benefit us in it. And the Ninth Commandment, obviously, is part of the Ten Commandments. So we're going to look at that this morning. And, and my hope is that as we go through our usual process of looking at the commandment and, and diving into it and understanding what it means and, and looking at some of its wider application and what it implies, that as we, as we do that, as we have over time, That God will use this time this morning to grab a hold of us as a people and individually and move us towards gracious truth-telling. That He will make us to be individuals and make us as a people to be those who love grace and truth. Who are actually full of grace and truth, just like Jesus was, John 1 tells us full of grace and truth, that we would be a people like that, that he would use this commandment towards that end. So I hope this morning, that's kind of the direction we're going. Let me read the passage, and as usual, I'm going to begin in verse 6 of Deuteronomy chapter 5, because that's where the law begins, and I want to set the whole context for it. So I'm going to begin reading in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6, up through verse 20, our verse for this morning. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder And you shall not commit adultery. And you shall not steal. And you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The word of the Lord. This ninth commandment is a little bit shorter than some of the previous ones, but it's still pretty brief. No false witness. The word false, you may may recall, we discussed up in the third commandment, when it was talking about taking the name of the Lord in vain, it's the same word as up there, which essentially could be translated as empty or nothingness, of no substance, of no value, worthless. So the word does not carry a a purely cold, simple, true or false nature to it. It's a little wider. Rather, it might be something more like full or valuable of good purpose. Substantive, accurate and right and meaningful or the opposite false or vain or empty or purposeless or inaccurate or hollow or worthless I'm kind of trying to flesh that out a little bit now i could be splitting hairs a little bit there i don't want to put too fine a point on it false is a, is a perfectly reasonable way to translate the word we need to see it just a little bit more broadly because what i'm trying to get at here is that it is possible that you could say something that is technically accurate and yet false in this sense. Something that could be on a very fine point on technicality entirely true and yet false. As an example, and I bring this up not to introduce any political viewpoint or not to talk about how we got there or what happened afterwards, but I mention this because we'll all know this. One of our former presidents... Under oath, described, disputed the meaning of the word is. Entirely accurately. Truthfully. But the whole thing was false. That's what I'm getting at. His point was accurate and true. But the whole testimony was designed to deceive and evade. False while being technically true. You shall not bear false witnesses, not concerned with just some technicality or some fine point argument about truth narrowly defined. We might say generally that it's what it's getting at is no unrighteous testimony, no unrighteous witness, but only righteous, good versus bad. Don't talk technicalities here. Is it wholesome and full and real or not? And the initial context of this witness is a court setting. A trial or an examination. A witness, somebody called to give testimony, to give a witness in a trial about or concerning another member of the community who's being judged. Neighbor does not just mean simply one who lives on your block, one who is you know in close proximity to you. Neighbor is someone else in the community. You might recall the the parable of the Good Samaritan in the New Testament where Jesus kind of expands that word and clarifies what it means. In in Jesus' day, the the Jews of his day were wanting to narrow that down. As Technically, they, they they were accurate in describing just, my neighbors are only people in the covenant community, only other Jews. So they asked him, you know, who's my neighbor? Hoping that he would say something that they liked. And he tells the story and expands it broadly to say, your neighbor is somebody else. That's who neighbor is. Another person. Jew, Gentile. Yes, another person. You shall not bear false witness against another. That's what the text means. Pretty straightforward. I'm going to make two observations regarding this commandment. One related to the commandment proper, and then one regarding what the implied opposite is we we'll begin with the commandment itself. I'm going to express it like this. very simply. Put away all falsehood. That's what he's getting at. God forbids all falsehood in all settings. and We must put it away. Get rid of it. Shun it. Avoid it. Hate it. Like he does. The Bible describes him hating falsehood and looked at from the perspective of societal impact, again, this commandment makes perfect sense. It's easy to imagine. It's easy to think through and see. False testimony in a court of law or in the court of public opinion ruins people, destroys them, may even take their lives. In court, a false testimony leads to an accusation that's false or a witness that's false, leads to perhaps a a false conviction which could lead to imprisonment or the loss of livelihood or the loss of life even. It's entirely obvious. That sort of thing destroys all the bonds of society, destroys justice, creates incredible mistrust. And even the, the lack of a conviction, sometimes just the accusation itself does just as much damage. Think through what the lives of all those Duke lacrosse players are like. Forever branded. I'm not saying that they were you know, perfect angels and saints and whatever they did. I don't really know all the details. But I do know that what they were accused of and arrested for and publicly condemned of did not happen at all. Not at all. And a district attorney lost his job over it. Because he wasn't concerned with true testimony was fine with false witness sometimes you don't even need to have the conviction you just need the false accusation to destroy people's lives and so obviously a societal purpose behind this makes perfect sense and we see in it god's love for people and His concern for our community because he knows how dangerous this sort of thing is right on the surface that makes perfect sense but but I hope that by this point in our study of the commandments that you're not content with just societal explanations. We need to see them because they're true, and they illustrate for us God's concern and his care for people, and his desire to, to build a world and then to reveal to us what he has built, to build a world that works. And we need to see that and understand some of how we are and some of what's out there because it is still a hard truth that we break the commandments to our own destruction. The Ten Commandments are not one way of looking at things. An idea of how the world might be structured. They are God's revelation to us of how things are and his instruction to us of how to live in harmony with reality. So we have to see the societal implications of the Ten Commandments for our own good, to see some of God's nature, but we cannot rest there. This world works, first and foremost, with individual people in relationship to God. We have to be people who think, How does? what does this say? What does this mean about me in relation to God, first, and then everybody else, second? There has to be something about God here. What's the theological reason for the Ninth Commandment? What is it? Well, let's think of it like this. Suppose somebody asks you a question. Whether you're on a witness stand or you're just in the hallway at school. Question, maybe. Did you see Sally riding her bike after school yesterday? And as soon as you have that question posed to you, a bunch of things run through your mind right away. Did I or did I not see Sally riding her bike? That would obviously run through your mind immediately. But a bunch of other stuff does too, such as, why is this person asking me? What's going on? Am I I in the middle of something here? Am I about to get in trouble? Is Sally about to get in trouble? Could I avoid getting myself in trouble? Could I get Sally in more trouble? Or could I get her off the hook? Or could I establish myself as being kind of a person of significance because I know stuff? And I can put myself at the center of the event and be the one that people come to, for the one who has knowledge. Or could I get myself out of this thing because this is toxic and I don't want any part of it? All that stuff kind of runs through your mind too. As soon as somebody says, did you see Sally? So hold that for a minute. And now bring in God, who is the God of truth, and whose testimonies, everything that he says, his word, is always true. He's the God of truth. Be very careful that we understand what I mean, though. It is not the case that there is God and there is some moral attribute out there called truth, that God saw thought, you know, that's pretty handy. That would be pretty good for structuring a society like that. I'm going to go for that. I'm going to be about truth. As if truth is independent from Him. That's a puny view of God. That views God as subordinate to some higher ethical system that's better than Him. And He then agrees with. That's not what's going on. In fact, God Himself is truth. That's what he is in his nature. And the only reason we can talk about it is because he has radiated truth out from himself into all of his creation. He in his very being is truth. And you can say the same for love and justice, etc., etc. It's what he is at his nature. These traits reflect his being. And when we face the question, did you see Sally riding her bike? We face a decision. We face a decision when we hear that question. Am I most concerned, right here and right now, to reflect, grab hold of, uphold, uplift, radiate out, and magnify the nature of God in His truth-telling? Or... Am I most concerned to grab hold of, uplift, and radiate out my own cause and my own agenda? That's the question. The truth is, I did see Sally riding her bike. But that will get me in trouble, because I wasn't supposed to be there. So I'm going to say, no. Or the truth is, I saw her, but if I admit that, it's going to get her in trouble and cause her to dislike me. And I really want her to like me, so I'm going to say no. Or, I didn't see her, but I know she wasn't supposed to be there, and I can get her. So yeah, I saw her. The lie, whatever way you go with it, the lie is driven by a dethroning of God, a casting out of truth, and an enthroning of myself and my own agenda and my own goal. In falsehood. It is theologically evil. It throws away truth, which is not a characteristic separate from God, which is the nature of God, and says, I do not care about that. I am concerned about my own cause and serving it in some way, which is evil in any creature that he makes and is particularly evil in those who claim his name. Those who he has placed in this world for the purpose of displaying him to the world and bringing him glory. You may recall, I used an illustration some time back about a full moon. A full moon shines in the night and illumines everything. Whose light is it, though? It's the sun's. It's the sun's light reflecting off of the moon that illuminates the planet. We are intended to be full moons shining forth, reflecting God. And when we move away from truth into falsehood, we cloud over the sky and hide God. We must not do that. It dethrones him. It dishonors him. It tells a lie about his nature and says he's not really that concerned about truth. After all, we're not worse people. That must be the standard in his kingdom, right? It tells a lie about his nature because when I move to my own cause and and believe that falsehood serves me, what I'm saying is he can't. He can't care for me. He can't provide for me. He can't sustain me. He can't protect me. I better do it myself by some means that is antithetical to God. Falsehood. Multiple layers. It is theological evil. Evil. And so God says you shall not bear false witness. Not in a court of law, not in the court of public opinion. No false witness about a person, about facts, about yourself. Not at all. Obviously the immediate context is a courtroom, and, and the law and Deuteronomy as a whole is, is a legal flavored document intending to, to regulate how this society behaves. There's a lot about law in this, about court law in this document. But I, I hope, seeing the theological angle behind it, that it would be obvious that we are not allowed to say, well, I'm not a lawyer, and I've never been to court, so the Ninth Canary doesn't apply to me. No. I hope it was obvious that we can't say that. The larger principle at work here says that God is about truth and against falsehood. We must put away all falsehood everywhere, in court and everywhere else. Put away any aspect of dealing with people or facts or topics in a way that shapes them or spins them, massages them. Probably most of us We get caught by this commandment, get caught in those words, shape and spin and massage. Most of us have a difficult time standing up and telling a bold-faced, blatant, clear lie. Most of us here. Not all of us, but probably most of us. But we are quite proficient at shaping and massaging. Presenting things in a certain light. Putting it in a way that will enhance me in some way. That will make me look not quite as bad as I might or a little better than I am. Serving my own cause, that's the essence of falsehood. We're all pretty good at that. It's pretty common. In society and in the church. As I was searching for different illustrations of this in the church, I thought, well, I can't say that one. That'd be a little too pointed. I can't say that one because somebody will know that's about them. And I can't say that one. Then I was looking for illustrations of my own life, and I was thinking, I can't say that one either. I need to repent of that. (laughs) But (laughs) But it's there. I decided to use one that would be benign, and here's the danger that it's another political illustration. That would be benign, but it would help kind of point out what I'm talking about here. And again, I I mean nothing politically about this, but this happened, and perhaps you read about it. In the campaign, the Democratic campaign, one of the candidates said something along the lines of, I keep hearing talk that Barack Hussein Obama is a Muslim. To my knowledge, that's not true. which is an entirely true statement and entirely deceptive. The whole thing is brought up to cause people to fear that he might be a Muslim. Now, whether you care about that or not is not the point. But do you see the issue? You drop in the Hussein part. You say, I hear people talk about this, which brings it back onto the table. And to my knowledge, it's not true, which means, well, maybe somebody else knows, though. I just don't whole thing's evasive. We do that too. Not just that candidate. Constantly present facts in a certain light. Exaggerate numbers. Diminish our ownership of a situation when talking to one person and enhance it in talking to another so that I take credit for it over here and deny it over here. You put away all aspects of that. All aspects of covering up the truth. This happens in churches and in families a lot too. I find that, I often find, I'm talking to a person or to a married couple about some issue, some thing that has kind of now erupted and has become a problem, and I realize this started 20 years ago. And nobody's known for decades until it just went boom. And now everybody knows, or more people are knowing. And man, what we would have benefited from it bringing that out into the light and dealing with it, rather than covering it over in falsehood. Put away all falsehood deliberate shaping of words, the deliberate avoiding of the stating of some words and situations. So the ninth commandment exhorts us to. To put away falsehood and instead love and speak the truth. Which brings us to the second observation. This turns to the opposite of the commandment. Positively speaking, what does the commandment imply? Positively speaking, God requires us to speak the truth in love. He requires his people to speak the truth in love. And as, as we deal with these commandments, I hope that you're, that you're constantly thinking, especially by this point, you're automatically thinking about issues that relate to the heart and about the, the broad reach of the particular very succinct prohibitions. I hope your, your mind is automatically Kind of spreading out and seeing what else does this touch and what does it touch on the inside? And so you're you're thinking, I hope, that if he's against empty, self-serving falsehood comes out of a self-centered heart, what's he in favor of? What's what's he want from us? Well, purposeful, not empty, purposeful, other centered truth. Be the, the logical Answer to that, and that's what the Apostle Paul tells us. Turn again to the book of Ephesians, which is about 100 pages from the end of your Bible. And isn't it interesting, just as we're turning there, isn't it interesting how much and how directly the Ten Commandments connect to the New Testament? You can walk through pieces of the New Testament and see, bing, 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 dealing with several of them in a row. The Sermon on the Mount, there are several that are taken on. Paul here in Ephesians addresses several right in a row. We're very closely connected to this law. still what God wants from us. And Paul's going to launch into that in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, I've preached through Ephesians before, and we were in the same place last week for the Eighth Commandment. So if you want more detail about this, I could refer you back to the the online resources that have those past sermons. But I need to say a, a little bit just to kind of get us all up to speed. In chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians, verses 22, 3, and 4, Paul is dealing with this issue, how does God mature Christians? How does he grow us? The first three chapters he dealt with, how do we become his people? And then the last three chapters, it's how then do we live? Which should sound similar to, he makes us his people, and then he gives us his requirements. Same structure. By chapter 4, he's into the requirements section. How does God shape us and grow us and mature us? In 22, 3, and 4, present a unit that we can't just take a little bit. We've got to get the whole thing. In 22, he talks about you were taught to put off the old self. Think of it like a change of clothing that's become dirty and and shot through and stained with sin. Deceitful desires within you that, that corrupt the old self. You want stuff that's all twisted and and deceitful and fools you, and it makes this old self sinful, and so you have to put it off by a choice of will to say no and to to constantly stiff-arm that old self, repent, turn away from it, say no. And then 23 in the middle, God does something. We do that. God does something. He makes us new. You notice that the statement is in the passive, be made new by God. And then 24, put on the new self, created by God, verse 23, to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So you put off and you put on, and in the middle, God does a work. So it's the two of us together, not up to me, not up to Him so that I'm passive. We work together. By God's grace, I grow. And to see how that applies specifically to our commandment, the ninth commandment, read the very next verse. Therefore, this is verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, there's the ninth commandment, and that's the put off part, having put away falsehood, what do you put on? Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Not just speak the truth about your neighbor, Speak the truth with your neighbor in all kinds of settings, whether you're talking to your neighbor who's on the jury, whether you're talking to your neighbor in a shop or in your house. Speak the truth, having put off falsehood. There's the two sides there. Put off falsehood, put on speaking the truth in love. I grabbed the in love from up in verse 15, where he says to speak the truth in love. It's Paul's teaching there. But it's so critical for how God builds a church that he's not done with it. Skip down to verse 29. And notice the put off, put on pattern. It's in that verse as well. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. It's put off. All corrupting talk that would erode, that would tear down, that would rip apart, that would corrupt. Don't let anything like that come out of your mouths. But instead, put on. Only such as is good for building up. As fits the occasion. That it may give grace to those who hear. Put on. The truth spoken in love. So as to build up others. That's what Paul's getting at. Without putting on the truth spoken to your neighbor. That which is grace coming out of your mouth as fits the occasion to build them up. Without putting that on, you're not keeping the ninth commandment. You cannot stop only in the put off and say, there I'm done. No. To put off and put on positively, truth speaking, rooted in love with the desire to build the other person up. Not just with warm fuzzies, but to enhance their growth in a substantive way. To help them to mature in Christ. That's Positively required of us in the commandment. Paul elaborates on that, makes that really clear. We must speak. We must have in our conscience the desire not just, what do I feel like saying here? But, what does that person need to hear? Not so as to put them in their place, not so as to set the record straight. That might sound right, but it's often self serving. What does that person need to hear so that this person, in the situation that they're in right now, as fits the occasion, verse 29, so that right now this person can grow, can grow in their similarity to Jesus in his nature? What would be grace coming out of my mouth, this person right now? The focus has shifted from me to them. Communication that seeks to build up and not tear down and not serve myself. Speak the truth in love. So ask yourself this question. And as I say this, I find myself hoping and praying that God would give sight to your eyes. Because I I say something like that. I find often I say something like, ask yourself this question. Everybody knows the question I'm going to ask. Are you this person or not? How do you compare? Are you the person who speaks falsehood to serve yourself? Or are you the person who speaks truth to serve the other person? You know, I'm going to ask that question. And a number of conscientious Christians hear that coming and begin to ask themselves the question and to look inside and to wonder, Lord, is this me or not? maybe even look a little too deeply inside and maybe get a little too hyper-analytical. But they begin to ask, which is generally a good thing, but the problem is, and why I pray that God opens eyes, is that some of us are blatant gossips, are clear, stand-out slanderers. And you're probably sitting there thinking of the people who need to hear this. I hope not. But what I pray is that God would open your eyes and you would see in the words of the prophet, I am that man. I am that woman. That you would realize what comes out of my mouth so often is to serve me and is shaped with just enough truth but just enough falsehood that I'm going to accomplish my goals and perhaps tear them down, but have certainly dismissed the God of truth. Are you that person or not? Or, by grace, are you the person who speaks the truth in love and thinks, I must be concerned for you, brother, for you, sister. What do you need to hear from me right now? What do you need to hear from the Lord through me? I want you to grow. I want you to become more like Christ. Is that you? I pray that it is. May He work that in all of us to lay aside falsehood and instead speak the truth and love to each other. It's an essential characteristic of a thriving church. Because as Jesus said, we are sanctified by the truth, we are not sanctified by friendliness. We are not sanctified by kindness. We're not sanctified by lack of conflict. We're not sanctified by good music. We're not sanctified by attractive preaching, whatever that means. We're sanctified by the truth. Delivered in conversation, delivered in music, delivered in preaching prayerfully. Delivered in personal one-to-one conversations in the hallway and in Bible studies and over coffee. We're sanctified by the truth. And we need from God, because Jesus continues and says, your word is truth. What he means is the only thing that grows us is his truth. By which he birthed us, says James. By which he grows us, says Jesus. Truth delivered in love. It is critical for a church. We both need it, you and I both. We need to see our sin, which is our enemy, not one another. Our sin is our enemy. We need to see our blind spots because there's all kinds of stuff I don't even see that I struggle with. I need that from you. You need it from me and one another. It's critical. But if I'm going to speak the truth to you that you need, as fits the occasion that it would be grace... I need to know what the occasion is. I need to know what you need right now. Not just what truth abstractly is, but what of it. There's a lot of truth. What of it do you need right now? And that means I need to live in your life. I you need to live in my life, for me. I need to live not just around each other so that we know each other's names, but, and not just next to each other, but in each other's lives, connected so that I know You. I see through Your facade. And You know what I'm dodging and what I desperately want to hide. And You know it, and You'll speak the truth to it in love, that I might grow and it would be grace to me. It's critical for a thriving church that we have this. But it's not just critical because that's helpful to us. Think back to truth and the nature of God. Truth speaking in love is critical to a thriving church because to put it simply, that makes the church a kind of place that Jesus wants to hang out. Verse 30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. How do you grieve the Holy Spirit? You make a a home that He doesn't want to live in. It says, thank you, but we'll take it from here. I see who you are, Spirit of truth, as First John says. I know who Jesus is, the way, the truth, and the life. I know that God hates falsehood and loves truth. I'm going to go a different way. And the Spirit is grieved by that, driven out, and a church dies without the Spirit. We need to be a people about speaking the truth in love. Talking a lot these days, you heard Bob pray about it. We're talking a lot these days about a, a renewed focus on community in the church. And if you're at the last congregational meeting on Tuesday night, or if you read the annual report that was sent out by email, or is, can, a hard copy can be obtained in the office, a little blurb on the website about community. We're talking and thinking a lot about this because we're kind of seeing some of the, the, the critical nature of living in one another's lives for the sake of sanctification and for the sake of witness, both. So we're talking a lot about that. And over the course of this next month, August, we're actually in August now, of course this next month, the elders are going to be launching an initiative that prayerfully will help us in this. It's not the end all, it's not the answer to everything, but we're convinced it will help us. We're going to be establishing some geographically based community groups, if you will. So somewhere between 20 and 40 people of all ages, Not a traditional Bible study, not a traditional small group of 10 people or so. It's a a community kind of fellowship group that will interact over the Word, preached Sunday morning, talked about Sunday night in these groups, interact in prayer, interact over a meal. Our hope is that these groups will begin to build some, bring some people for the first time alongside of each other, and then eventually will connect people into one another's lives to provide opportunity. A larger context for and even time on that very evening to speak truth into one another's lives. And It has to get there because if it stops short of that, just at here's another meeting to go to, who needs that? Or if it stops short of that as here's a nice place where I can know people's names and feel comfortable, don't need that either. We need a place that facilitates truth speaking based in love. So if you're in the, if you're in the directory, you're going to be contacted about that sometime this month. If you want to be contacted about that, let the church office know. But think about what that would look like. A community that connects and actually lives in one another's lives. And then speaks the truth to one another as is fitting for the occasion, as I need to be built up. Think about what that would look like. There would sometimes be conflict there because who likes to hear the truth expose your sin? Often that rubs us the wrong way right away. So there would be some, some conflict, I think. But there would also be resolution of the conflict and growth. And there would be a sweetness that develops as we exchange grace with one another, not condemnation, not finger-pointing policing, grace. Grace. The grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness while we await His coming. It would be a wonderful community, people that you live with, that help you grow and deal with your sin, which is your enemy. I've only been a part of that kind of community one time. I talked about it before in other settings. It was in an overseas setting, and so there was some help and that we didn't have anywhere else to go. We were kind of confined to one another's lives. But it was a sweet thing. It was a sanctifying thing. I I think about and I long for and I I hope for when I remember to, I pray for that we would become that sort of church. We would become a real community. That we can't do it at 200 some people, but I think we can do it in 20, 30, 40 people. So that's what we're moving towards. But what other neighbors need to hear from you the truth spoken in love? And remember, neighbor is not just another person in the covenant community. Neighbor is other person. What other people need from you true witness in love? the millions of people who don't know Christ and live within half an hour of your house and my house. I go up on, on this, uh, sometimes it's Saturday nights, I go up on this, there's a parking lot up there for a shuttle service on Wasatch, and you can see over the whole valley, and obviously at night there's all these lights lit up, and you just see millions of people. And, you know, kind of run the math real quickly. How many of them are Christians? A fraction. How many of them know the truth? A fraction. A fraction of a fraction. Who does know the truth? We do. I do. I live right next door to my neighbor. They need to hear from us the truth. In love, not in condemnation. Not only is that highly unlike Christ, it's not helpful. Who wants to listen to somebody who hates them? In love, to speak the truth to people, to get into their lives... So that the opportunities and what's fitting in this situation, this situation becomes apparent to us when we're in somebody's life. So that we know what grace looks like right there, how the gospel applies to that thing right there. There's a hundred questions that come to my mind. How do I know what how the gospel applies to that? How do I get into somebody's life? Yeah, okay, hundreds of questions. Agreed. But it begins with a burden. It begins with a a convinced self-nature that I have to be about this. It's what He calls us to, to be true witnesses, not just to these neighbors, but to our neighbors. Speak the truth in love. We must be about that. But just to say that this is what we have to be about is not sufficient. I I can call us to it. I can call myself to it. I can pray for it. But I have to say a little bit about how we get there. Because if I only talk about verse 22, put off, and verse 24, put on, and leave out 23, I've gutted it. We are only changed by the grace of God at work in us. His grace. We need Him to do a work. How does He do this work in us? Well, we can keep reading in Ephesians. We can go to a bunch of places. But since we're in Ephesians, let's look there. You keep reading on down to the end of 4. He addresses other issues. He specifically mentions slander and clamor and malice. And then beginning of 5, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So there's the commandment. Walk in love. Be imitators of God who is truth. Imitate Him in truth and present it in love. As I'm walking in love, there's the, it's right there. But how do I get that? As Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. I'm changed to be an imitator of God as my mind and my heart is set on Christ's love for me and His sacrifice for me. That's what Paul's doing. He's taking their eyes and he's showing, here's the commandment, and let me take your eyes and direct them towards Christ hanging on the cross in love. I want you to walk in love, and I'm going to make you look over here to get you there. You see that in 5, 1, and 2. He directs us through Christ, through verse 23 to 24. As we set our minds on Christ, as He opens our eyes and shows us Christ. When the glory of Christ and His cross and His love displayed there controls us on the inside, a number of things happen. My love of self is reduced, my love for Him is grown, and I begin to love what He loves, the church. I begin to love what he loves, lost people. And I think importantly, the fear that, for myself, the fear that often drives falsehood. You know, what what am I driven to take care of myself by? I'm I'm driven there often by a fear that if I don't, it's not going to work out. We fear the truth. When we're talking to somebody and we know that if, if I just say to you, no, nope, I did not do that. Did you do what I asked you to do? No, I did not do that. Why not? Because I preferred watching TV. But that's not going to go well for us. So we say, oh, I didn't quite get to that yet. Why? I got busy. Well, it's sort of true. You did get busy watching TV and deliberately choosing against what your spouse asked you to do or your boss asked you to do or whatever. We fear that if I say it exactly like it is, it's not going to go well for me. But if my eyes are directed on Christ and the cross, where he went to die to remove from me wrath and place me in grace with God, if that's filling my mind, fear gets drawn out of this situation. Yeah, it's not going to go well for me. I'm going to be held accountable to my choices. But in ultimate sense, I'm secure. I stand in grace with God. See, that removes fear. More could be said about that. But why he directs us to Christ and his love, who loved us and gave himself for us, he directs us there because it, as the gospel, him dying on the cross, that message about him dying on the cross comes to us, it changes us spiritually, supernaturally. It changes us and causes us to look at different things. It removes fear. It causes us to become more like Him. So we are to put away falsehood and instead speak truth to our neighbors. And we do that by drawing our eyes to Christ who loved you and gave Himself for you. May He work that in us. May he remove clouds out of the sky so that we, the moon, have a clear line of sight to the sun and therefore reflect the sun's light to the world that's all around us. We're going to move towards communion now. And as we do that, some of the kids are going to come back in, and as we do that, ask God... Where am I on the spectrum of falsehood and, and shaping and manipulating or speaking the truth in love with a desire to build up? Where, where am I on that? Help him point that out to you. And ask him, Lord, direct my eyes to the cross. I, you're gonna, we're going to see it right here in these elements. Direct my eyes to the cross and let me see your love for me as you gave yourself for me. Change me. Pray, talk to him, and in a couple minutes I'll close this and we'll move into communion.
0: Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission.